And so if I were to give advice to a telco, trying to figure out how to grow their revenue from data and, and provide value-added services, I'd say compete with Google Play. And welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 135. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation highlights from across the African continent. A big shout out to the teams at Business Live and Multimedia Live for bringing our show to their audiences via businesslive.co.za and wherever Multimedia Live podcasts are streamed. My name is Andile Masugu, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us for our very first flagship episode of 2020, because we'll be talking about the ongoing space race to building a pan-African super app or indeed super platform. So stick around to hear why our special guest on the program today is convinced that the $70 billion mobile gaming industry is the Trojan horse everyone's been sleeping on. That's all coming up. But first, allow me to welcome back to the co-host seat, the Nigerian homie, the tech industry analyst, and all-round eclectic vibe. That is Osa Ruman Osamui. How you doing, my man? I'm doing all right, Andile. Uh, is, it too, is it too late to say Happy New Year? Listen, it's never too late to, uh, for good wishes, bro. <laughs> you, you could do this till June. I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure having you on. But listen, uh, I'm not one of those people who take it personal. Uh, you know, Happy New Year all the way till December is fine by me. <laughs> listen, <laughs> congrats on being appointed a scout at Microtraction, man. Um, an investment scout, man. Congratulations. Thank you very much. What does that mean? It means uh, Microtraction is uh, leveraging my, I guess, my access, my network to extend their reach beyond their grasp. So they're primarily domiciled in Nigeria. And so the scouts are pretty much people who either travel a lot um, or have a presence in different local ecosystems. And so at the same time, the other side of that coin is that um, local founders in multiple countries, for myself, it's uh, Kenya, Nigeria, Rwanda, Ethiopia, who want access to microtractions capital can then do so through us. The recommendations we make will be will prioritized. Hey, your inbox must be a very interesting place, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is. Since, since I tweeted about it, it's been very interesting. Yes, yes. That's what I saw too. Like uh, when I saw the tweet, I was like, brave man, brave man. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I wish you all the best, man. I'm sure it's going to be a, a good time. Look forward to gleaning your learnings as and when, you know, you feel interesting things right here on the show. I'm sure we'll be better benefiting by default, certainly from the insights you clean as you do this job. So all the best with it. Yeah. It's also a great learning opportunity for me, by the way, because founders are some of the smartest people about like many subjects. And so those conversations while, while trying to work out like who's a good fit for microtraction end up benefiting me. Uh, that's, that's one of my secret reasons for doing this. Ah, oh, there you go. Modesty tick. <laughs> This is good. Listen, we have an extra special guest joining us today. Welcome to you, Lucy Hoffman Parry. Great to be here, guys, and happy new year and also a happy leap year. Hey, really, I suppose, <laughs> privileged to be part of uh, this particular one, 2020. You are, of course, the co-founder and vice president of operations at a Cape Town headquartered and American gaming and mobile app startup called Carry First. What does Carry First do, Lucy? Cool. So Carry First is aiming to be 
the number one mobile publisher serving African consumers um, with engaging content. And we've started with games. When I hear sort of content provider, I think more like a production company and less a tech company. Are you both? Are you one more than the other? Uh, when we talk about content, what we're really talking about are apps. Apps are just a, another form of content. And the way we think about it is that we both develop content. So we're a content producer, which means that we make our own apps and in this case, our own games. But really what we're looking to become and evolve into is a publisher of content, which means that not only will we be developing our own content or games, but we'll also be working with local app developers or international app developers to publish, market, monetize their content in the African space. So we'll be looking to unpack that a little later in the context of having you factor in on today's discussion. Uh, but by way of introducing you to the village even further, I thought it might be a plan to walk through your work history and ask you to draw maybe the one thing from each gig that you've rocked so far that you found most useful in your current role at Carry First. Does that sound good? Yeah, that's awesome. So just by way of introduction, as is probably evident already, I'm originally from the U.S., grew up just outside of New York City and started my career uh, many years ago as an investment banking analyst in New York. Um, and that's actually where yeah, I Yeah, but met. before that, you were an intern at Credit Suisse. I was, yeah. I was an intern. At, you did your homework. Well, I took a year off in the middle of university and what was supposed to be a three-month internship at Credit Suisse ended up being more like a nine-month internship. And so what would you say you took away from that? Uh, that's most relevant to, to what you do now. I actually wasn't working in finance in that internship. I was working in diversity and inclusion, um, which is just something I, I'm particularly passionate about. And it was really the first chance I had to understand what it takes to build an effective, diverse team. So yeah, I think now being an expat and having, uh, you know, we have 18 people that work at Carry First, but I think we represent something like nine nationalities. Um, with very diverse work experience. So so a lot of sort of that initial experience has, has really come into play. I want to know what you might have taken away from your five years at Morgan Stanley. I believe you were working in, you know, M&A, capital markets, things like that. What would you have taken away from one of the world's biggest sort of financial institutions? Yeah, sure. So I actually, I worked there uh, for sort of three and a half years, worked first in the power and utilities group. And which is really interesting uh, sort of group at Morgan Stanley. We covered both renewable energy providers as well as the big old utilities. And I worked particularly with the smaller companies in the renewable space. So it was my real first foray into working with founders and sort of the challenges they face, particularly uh, when you get to a point where you're looking for capital to scale your company, which has become particularly relevant to me now. But I really think the benefit of, of starting my career with Morgan Stanley was, was just getting a, a skill set or toolbox for being a high-functioning professional, um, having access to the finance space, kind of understanding the lingo, and then also developing a network of people who are just brilliant and ambitious. And uh, and I think when you go out and you start your own venture, having that network to tap into has been, been particularly important. Right. I suppose the startup bug bit. Yeah. Uh, you were head of operations at Nexi. 
Yep. So I, uh, when I was kind of thinking about what to do after the analyst program at Morgan Stanley, I uh, was going to go get my MBA. Um, I gotten into Wharton and ha- even had a, a lease signed to, to spend a, a couple of years in Philadelphia. And I went to Welcome Weekend, heard from second year MBAs that had started their career in consulting or investment banking, ultimately were interested in the career of, of sort of social impact, but did cool internships and were going straight back to consulting or investment banking. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm, I'm young. I don't have any dependents. Now's actually a really good time to go take a leap of faith and do something entrepreneurial. And I can always come back to this corporate career if, if the entrepreneurial journey is not for me. And it was actually Cordell, my co-founder, who introduced me to Tamsin Ratcliffe, who is a, a female entrepreneur in Cape Town, who is trying to build a marketplace for impact investing. And this was 2012, so super early days of impact investing. And as a you know, young, ambitious, bright-eyed person, I thought this is you know this sounds cool. I have some skills and knowledge in the finance space. I'm really interested in having a, a life of impact. And so maybe there's something I can do here and be, you know, add some value. So I packed up my bags in 2012, moved down to Cape Town, knowing really no one here and, and nothing about the city other than it was on the ocean and thought I would be in Cape Town for a year. And it's been now basically eight years that I've been living in South Africa. Right. And I mean, after Nexi, it was African Leadership Academy, where, again, you spent a, a great deal of time yeah. helping them, you know, flesh out their financial and operational hustle. Um, what would you say you took away from what is now, I think, the more highly regarded sort of hybrid millennial plays within uh, African education and, dare I say, even higher education? Yeah, I think they're changing the game when it comes to, to higher education and, and also secondary education. I think that the way African Leadership Academy is thinking about how to define what success looks like for young people with diverse skill sets, right? Like not everyone's going to be a math genius. So how can we kind of tailor education to bring the best out of you and connect you to opportunities to have impact in, in whatever fields you're sort of best placed for, I think is, I think is super interesting. And I'd tell anyone who has a kid between the ages of sort of 12 to 15, like check out ALA and, and consider it, it for your kid. I hope I, to, I send mine there eventually. The, I've had the opportunity to work with amazing founders and sort of Fred and Chris are top notch. Um, the founders of uh, of ALA, ALA of yeah, Fred Swanaker and Chris Bradford, Acha Leke and Peter Mumbar, also founders. But I, I had the chance to work closely with Chris and Fred. And listen, I think the thing I, I took away from it is that hard things are hard. <laughs> and if it were easy, somebody else would be doing it. And so I think really when you have a, a big, ambitious vision, it's just kind of staying committed to the cause, figuring out how to build a really diverse team that have different perspectives and can help you kind of deliver on that journey. Super important. So it was really sort of best education and entrepreneurship that I could possibly have. 
Fantastic. I mean, now that you're introduced um, to the village, welcome again to the village. You are officially a member. Hello, village. <laughs> nice to meet Absolutely. you all. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, I suppose as a segue to our discussion, we'll need to explain to the village why we've invited a founder of a gaming startup to talk super apps, given all the other, quote, more serious mobile-driven super app trends on the go in Africa. Uh, people might think fintech and anything that's a proxy for fintech, gambling, mobility, social media, logistics, etc. You know, some folks will be like, those are proper super app potential stuff. <laughs> like, what on earth are you doing talking about gaming? Well, without any further ado, let's jump into the topic at hand. Lucy, what three words come to mind when you hear the words super app or super platform? What three words? Hmm. Also, Ruman, you're next. Uh, the first one that came to mind was hype. Hype? Yeah, I'd say fintech and... Fintech? Value. Okay, so hype, fintech, value. Also, Ruman, what three words come to mind when you hear those words? Super app, super platform. The first word that comes to mind is dominance. Second word that comes to mind is adoption. Third word that comes to mind... Uh, can I say fintech? Sure you can. So for me, the three words that come to mind are network effects, which are two words, and data. Ooh, good one. Now, Lucy, unpack why those three words, if you don't mind, briefly for each word. Why, why was the first word you thought of hype, the second fintech, and the last one value? So hype, I, I just think this is something that people are really focused on. It's it's a conversation point. It's something that's being sort of drum up by media. It's funny. Carrie First actually never set out to become Africa's super app or create it, but we've gotten lumped into it. So we're happy to have the conversation. <laughs> on fintech, listen, I think super apps fundamentally hinge on uh, sort of the financial rails that drive them, regardless of what product or service you're offering users. I think what necessitates a, an awesome super app is, is really strong underpinning fintech that allows people to transact seamlessly. And then value, I think it comes down to kind of what consumers want. One way you, you mentioned network effects, dominance and adoption, and so when you think about what drives those, and it's really ultimately value for the end consumer. And so also, Ruman, you you had three words. Why those three words? Uh, dominance, adoption, fintech. Dominance being that in many of the markets where we've seen super apps or super platforms uh, spring up, they have tended to be like the the end all and be all for, for the consumers who use them. And from conversations with a couple super app aspirants, that's one of the things that they're, they're looking at. They want to be the, quote, operating system for, for a marketer geography. Uh, adoption, some the implications of the strategy that I've seen uh, many super apps like deploy is a brute force approach to the market. If you take Ope in Nigeria, for example, spending a lot of money, uh, being really aggressive with driving adoption. One of the things I see is that that will cause adoption to flow elsewhere. So if someone first gets onto their phone because they, they say an OPE promised them free food deliveries, they're not going to just do that. They will do other things. So it will end up driving adoption for many other services in the market. So I, I suspect that the foundational layer for many super apps is a payments play. Um, there's many reasons why that is. Like digital payments gives 
platforms capabilities that they otherwise would not have if they were leaning on cash payments. And many of the services that they're offering are fintech services in the first place. So uh, that's why I have my three words. Right. And so I think network effects and data, because when I think super app or super platform, I think in terms of ubiquity and some of the platforms that are relevant to my experience that come to mind when I think of ubiquity, I think of things like Telegram and WhatsApp and and Facebook uh, and Instagram. I think social media, certainly, and, and interesting how platforms like Facebook and Twitter and, and many others were just five to 10 years ago thought of as solely these wonderful places that people came to connect. And now, you know, post the Cambridge analytical thing, they're now thought of as potentially, you know, anything from, you know, these ominous advances of the contraventions of human rights to, you know, to again, as you both pointed out, I suppose the most promising plays at banking the world to unprecedented levels. And so I think all of that hinges on the humble network effect. And then, of course, data comes into play as, depending who you speak to, this hugely politicized or under-politicized commodity that is becoming essentially key to any startup's, you know, aspirations to becoming a unicorn in the sort of Silicon Valley sense, or even at the most humblest sense, building a successful model, repeatable model into the future. And so folks, using that as a backdrop, Lucy, explain to me why a super user of a mobile device who never plays games on his phone, and that's me, (laughs) (laughs) why should I buy into the hype of, say, carry first being part of this super app wave, if if at all? And, and, And maybe more broadly, why should I buy into the idea of the super platform potential of mobile gaming as as an industry. Cool. When you think about super apps, the default is to think about super apps that hinge on mobility, particularly in the African context, right? Where you have lots of like ride hailing apps that are coming on board or using mobility as a way to bring people into their, their mobile wallet. But it's not necessarily the premise or required for a super app. I think that that kind of concept was really popular because you saw a few players do really well in in Southeast Asia, right? You had Grab, you had GoCheck, which have raised a ton of money and have, you know, hundreds of millions of, of monthly active users. But there are lots of different ways that you can kind of drive to a super app. And, and really, a super app is just one place a user can go to get sort of a variety of, of goods and, and services. And so when we thought about sort of carry first and our role in sort of driving value for customers, we came kind of down to basics. You know, why do people purchase smartphones to begin with? And for the most part, it's to connect with friends and family, right? And that's why you see kind of Messenger and chat be, as you mentioned, sort of the most ubiquitous apps that are used. But the other thing that people look to do with their phones is be entertained. Now, whether that's on social media, whether that's like on TikTok or Instagram is one thing, but mobile games are a massive, right now over 2 billion people playing mobile games. And particularly in places where there's not a lot of competition for entertainment, people don't really realize this, but if you take all of the revenue from box offices globally, uh, mobile gaming is still a bigger industry. Than the movie industry Than the movie industry globally. 
And then people don't realize it because it's kind of this like secret thing that we all do or some of us do by ourselves in private on subways and commutes, waiting in line at home affairs. But it's a, it's a massive industry and where there's not a lot of competition for entertainment, particularly in rural areas, games and mobile games can play a really big role in sort of people's lived daily experiences. So we started basically with just the premise that there's an opportunity here in providing entertaining, engaging content that's sort of designed for preferences of consumers across the continent and also solves for some of the challenges. And when you think about those challenges, a lot of them come down to fintech. So when if we have a platform with millions of people that we've been able to attract because games are fun, (laughs) then built out the sort of underlying financial infrastructure for them to be able to purchase digital goods and transact seamlessly, then it's very easy for us to think about adding different services and goods on top of of that platform. And that's kind of how, how we got into it and why we think it's attractive. And also, Ruman, the macros of an expected 167 million unique mobile subscribers being added by sort of 2025 to the current number we have reaching a total of something like 623 million. This is according to GSMA. I suppose the macros are fueling the speculation and skin in the game. Folks like Carrie First are are willing to put up. I, I wonder that from where you're sitting as an analyst, as a VC resource, what do you think about those sort of macros? Do you think is typically oversimplified and or underestimated. Those macro numbers are valuable, but not the complete story. So for example, how do we define what a mobile subscriber is? The more interesting question to me is, to what extent uh, is usage happening? So Mm. as opposed to looking at a metric like number of mobile subscribers, I will probably look at mobile data consumption. I'll probably look at airtime consumption. I'll probably look at time spent on a mobile device as a signal. You know, obviously those signals are are less clear to us at this time. The top line mobile subscriber number is, is like what everybody reports and what everybody discusses. So so yeah, I think I think it's a useful signal for like baseline, what does this market look like? But to assess the validity of any play here, I will probably need to, or we'll probably need to have a conversation about how much utility there is. Yeah. Or how much usage is happening. Again, the GSMA expects data consumption to grow by 400% by 2024. I suppose for me, the idea of even talking about super apps and super platforms outside of understanding like who controls the infrastructure or who's controlling or influencing most prolifically the rollout of this mobile access and indeed who is to a great degree shaping the the new habits and consumer behaviors forming around these technologies on the continent. I often find that those are the doozies that, of course, being Africa, we don't have a ton of data about, but I wonder how you at Carry First think about that and perhaps how you're experiencing it in practically having to, to monetize in the space. Uh, listen, there are a few ways we think about it. The telcos obviously have a massive role to play when we think about digital inclusion. Um, and I think, Osaruman, your point around looking at sort of su- subscriptions versus data usage or consumption is a really important one, right? There are people who may have subscribed but, but have really spotty access or it's just too expensive to actually be able to you know, purchase and, and consume data as much as they would like. Uh, and telcos have a massive role to play, obviously. I think 
a really good uh, example of where telcos sort of completely changed the game was in India. Most people kind of are shocked to hear, but India has some of the cheapest data on the planet, if not the cheapest data on the planet. But that happened because there was a challenger telco a few years ago that was funded by a you know billionaire and had just completely undercut the market and started selling data at a fraction of the cost of everyone else and everyone else had to drop their prices. And now as a result, the digital economy has blossomed and you have you know the ability for sort of average consumers to consume data in, in rates that weren't accessible to them years prior. So if we saw that happen on the continent, I think you'd similarly see an explosion in activity and also hopefully an explosion in sort of the industry itself with various content producers, app producers, etc. But in the meantime, I think what is currently a challenge and constraint can also be seen as an opportunity. And that's how we think about it at Carry First. Right now, you have some of the biggest game titles in the world trying to make a play. And these are guys you know, like PUBG, which is a two gigabyte first person shooter game, right? And they're trying to make a play on the continent. They're the number one game globally in most markets. But who's going to spend two Gs on a, on a game in, in our markets? It's tiny, tiny fraction. And so what we basically have started carry first with the premise that everything that we develop is going to be data light and data conscious because you can still create engaging content in a data constrained environment. And there's still appetite for it, um, which we've seen and kind of proven with, with our first game last year, launched it in Nigeria in, in March 2019 and now have you know just over a million downloads across the continent but it's 10 megabytes. So for a consumer that actually takes a, takes a moment to look at the size of an app before they download it, it still sort of falls within their like quote unquote budget for, for digital content. And we think there's a massive opportunity there just to design for our consumers in mind. So I have to admire how you're shaking the hype off your shoulders a little bit, because I think the hype is coming in hot. And I think a lot of people argue the premise that the Indian experience can be the African experience or a version of what's happening in China with, you know, the likes of perhaps Tencent, you know, that this idea that um, everything that's happening in India could well be what could happen in Africa, what everything that's going down in China led by folks like Tencent and others could be our experience. And I, I appreciate how you are grounding this discussion in the realities you're experiencing, which are that is not our experience and perhaps might not be for the next short while, if at all, given the realities of our of our ecosystems and markets. Given those realities, how are you guys responding to that? You have spoken about your your development efforts. You know, how do you monetize those efforts? within the context of what is this growing mobile market, but uh, perhaps not growing in the ways and within the context of, of places like India where data is so cheap. I guess there are two parts of my, my answer. One is we think that like the underlying growth story and fundamentals are really interesting um, that make this a worthwhile play. And then and second of all, there's a lot of work that we have to put into sort of building these, what we call the financial rails to make this make sense. But when you think about mobile gaming, it's a very profitable business, but it's profitable only really at scale, right? So just to 
kind of illuminate how, how most mobile gaming business models work. You have, you know, a really large active user base of people who try your product. Some of them stick around for a, a few weeks, maybe a couple months. Most of them kind of churn within, uh, within a week. And of the people who ever play your game, you have a small fraction of people who ever pay. Uh, it's something like 5% for world class titles. Um, what? but really? on average, yeah, on average, it's more like one or 2%, but they become your super users and they come back and they just absolutely love your game and continue. That's really interesting model when you think about the continent, right? Where you have basically, we call it the Robin Hood effect. You have two, 3% of users who, who pay for digital goods, but love the game, keep coming back and essentially subsidize the experience for everything else. And in a, an economy where, where what we're selling are essentially pixels, it can be quite a profitable business model, right? You buy, you buy free lives. That doesn't cost us anything, but it subsidized the development. And then if you hit a certain number of users, you've, you've obviously paid for that title and, and can make a nice, nice profit on them. So for us, it's, it's really about scale. And we think the underlying fundamentals on the continent are really interesting. It's the fastest growing youngest population in the world. You have 1.3 billion people here already. It's growing at two and a half percent. And what's really interesting is that that not only like are the sort of demographics going in the right way from a growth perspective, but you also have uh, people coming online for the first time. So the market's growing significantly. And then on us, it's really about making sure that we've, we've, kind of implemented the payments infrastructure necessary for people to pay. So a lot of what we focus on, uh, obviously, we, we develop our own games, but it's really important for us that we're working with a lot of these fintech partners that are cropping up across the continent and, and scaling their own operations so that we, wherever you are, whether you're in Kenya or Nigeria, South Africa, Ghana, Tanzania, you can transact seamlessly on Carry First through one of the many payment partners that we that we leverage and and partner with. So um, I I resonate strongly with your central thesis that that maybe we are systematically undervaluing gaming as a vector for driving adoption. Lots of the things uh, you've been saying like, suggest that you believe that to be true. I remember a Wired article about the Mosaic browser. Um, I think it said uh, when it comes to smashing a paradigm, pleasure is not the most important thing. It's the only thing. Yes, I love that. <laughs> if we, you know, and by the way, this is backed up by like the fact that many of the biggest apps and services across the continent, without exception, are like either messaging type things or gaming type things or, or social network type things. For example, many of the biggest Nigerian consumer-facing digital services have probably like a million users. Facebook has like 26 million or something um, or, or 27 million. Mm -hmm. Contained with, within that idea, though, is the idea that you don't require as much like local context or as, as many boots on the ground or structures on the ground to succeed in this space. And so can you make the case for like Carfest succeeding and not see a Tencent or a Facebook, given, you know, the difference in development resources, uh, ETC. And, and I'm not sure that just making lighter games or, or lighter apps is sufficient because, again, Facebook's uh, biggest usage comes from, I think, their Facebook Lite app. Um, so so what, what structural advantages does Carfest have uh, for driving adoption here uh, and elsewhere? 
We fundamentally agree that if you're trying to smash a paradigm, as you say, it's easier to do with a carrot rather than a stick. And so, so if, if we're talking about this, like, you know, ever elusive fourth industrial revolution on the continent, I think it's going to happen because people are deciding they're making very personal decisions to come online to invest whatever funds they have in, in buying a smartphone or converting from a feature phone to a smartphone and, and starting to participate probably through entertainment or connection. You know, Facebook has a massive presence in terms of users, but they don't have a lot of focus, particularly in, in our space. And we think there's there's a lot of room to, to play, right? You have gaming studios in the US that are now worth, you know, a couple billion dollars that do very well. And they're also competing with Facebook for people's eyes and attention. I think there's just, there's a lot of space to play and they're not necessarily a competitor. The cool thing about games or mobile content is that you can be on Facebook now or Facebook Lite now and three minutes later decide that you're going to switch over to one of Carrie First's games. And as a consumer, you're not choosing between them. You're consuming multiple of them. Where that may come into play is, is what you decide to download onto your smartphone, which is why we think it's it's really important to have these, these data light apps. But we don't really see them as a competitor. And when we do think about our competitive advantage more broadly, it's really about focus. Uh, you look at a lot of the big global players and they have minuscule teams on the continent. You know, they're just not focused on on kind of where we're playing right now. Ultimately, I think the fo- that's going to change. I think in, you know, three, five, six, seven years, people are going to realize that Africa is sort of the final growth market or quote unquote frontier market and want to have sort of a piece of the action. But I don't think there's a focus now and certainly not an appetite to solve for some of the challenges with marketing and monetizing on the continent. So, you know, we talk we talk again about about fintech. We right now have integrated with five different payment partners and are in conversations with another five just to make it possible for our customers to pay us, right? Because they can't simply plug into the App Store or Google Play Store and be able to use a Visa or MasterCard. And that just requires institutional focus. It requires business development. It requires technical integrations. And we just don't see a lot of the international players that interested. And when they are interested, I think we'll be really well-placed to be a strategic partner for folks looking to understand and scale content across Africa. What sort of baseline numbers over the next short while do you need to land in order to, to make this business model work? I mean, this year we're, we're hoping to get to 5 million monthly active users by the end of the year. But that's sort of an arbitrary number. And if we're in that place, we'll be in a great position for this business to work. Um, that number could be 20 million, um, depending on sort of the content that we're able to publish and push and the speed at which we're able to do that. And I think, you know, that's just a fraction of the people who are online on the continent already. So there's a there's a huge opportunity here and we kind of think it's ours to lose. And so for me there's a there's a question, you know, around the universal appeal of say what you call content you're creating for African users to to entertain themselves with inherent to impactful content anyway, I think, but especially so in Africa is solving for culture and language. And I wonder 
if you don't have an additional burden relative to, say, massive international titles that, you know, benefit from, quote unquote, universal first world culture, you don't have this additional burden to sort of tailor your offering across, what, 54 countries or whatever. (laughs) You know, to what extent do we need to localize content and make it really relevant? I think the thing about games is there's something kind of automatically universal You know, Candy Crush is Candy Crush if you're playing it in Southeast Asia or you're playing it in L.A. or you're playing it in, you know, wherever. It's a match three game. And that doesn't need to be localized depending on where you are. There's something just kind of human about wanting to make gems or fruits explode. Um, and so that's the kind of the, one of the reasons why games is also, we decided to start with it is because it's actually pretty easily both adopted, but also adaptable. We actually started with what is probably a, a very difficult concept to localize, which was trivia. We saw trivia as a game people love and have played offline for you know as long as probably humans have existed, right? We were, we're constantly in competition with each other around knowledge. And we saw some really interesting examples of trivia apps going viral in the US, Europe, China, India, and, and South America, and didn't see a really exciting one on the continent. So Carry First Trivia was our first app. Um, and that requires a, a lot of localization. I've been in South Africa now for nearly eight years, and there's a very popular trivia game here called 30 Seconds. Love that game. Half, and Julie, it's like half the, half the questions are about cricket or rugby, and I am completely at a loss, right? Um, but what we've done with Carry First Trivia is we've worked with local writers, and this is the great thing about kind of where we are in the in the gig economy and what's available to us is we you know we put out job posts and we've gotten you know at this point probably a hundred different freelance writers to submit questions. The content itself is coming from our user base, right? These are young. In the case when we launched in Nigeria, these were young Nigerians who were writing questions that made sense in Nigeria, right? They were about Nigerian business icons, uh, universities, food, language, culture. And when we launched in Kenya, we hired Kenyan freelance writers. And now we invite our users to submit questions. So there's a way of, yes, there's a burden. I think there's really creative, low-cost ways to overcome it. And then more largely, I think games don't need to be localized with the same, like the, the, the hurdle to localize isn't as high as say TV, movies or, or music. If we were trying to be a game studio and that's kind of all we had aspired to be, we might have a bit more sort of business model risk associated. Really the concept of becoming a publisher is that we're not sort of beholden to creating hits in the same way you might be if you if you're just trying to churn out games every year, right? In hopes that one is going to be your your Candy Crush or your Farmville. What we're really trying to do is understand and serve consumers first. And so what what does that mean? Is you know understand the type of marketing and messaging that gets somebody to download an application. Give them the payments infrastructure to be able to transact 
seamlessly plug into various social communities, whether they're online or importantly, really importantly, offline, so that you can drive adoption of different products and services. And whether that's, you know, games as we've started out with or other sorts of digital content that we hope to publish. That's really kind of the area where we're trying to play. And that means that we'll, you know, we'll work with app developers and maybe it's not a game. Maybe it's like you have a guy in Kenya or a team in Kenya that's built an awesome dating app. And they've like, they have a really cool concept. It's like really relevant to sort of cultural norms and how we think about dating, um, but have no pathway to scale or monetize that application, more, most likely because they don't have the resources. That's where Carry First wants to play, is basically going and finding awesome content that's being produced here or elsewhere and saying, let us help you market and monetize this across the continent. We think that there's a really exciting consumer base. We think there's really suppressed demand for, for mobile content. And you know we're the ones to kind of get it into the hands of our users. Also, Roman, what do you reckon people who aren't familiar with starting up in Africa need to understand about, you know, how much time you spend doing the business of being the startup or creating the product or crafting the service, as it were, and how much time you need to to spend for what Lucy is talking about, unique distribution and infrastructural sort of capabilities, issues that might not be anything you need to think about if you are doing something similar, say, in in Hong Kong? Um, my sense is a lot. So uh, what I've seen is that businesses that get started here and, you know, say countries like Nigeria, Kenya, ETC, um, have to deal with these frictions. But those things, once overcome, then form part of their competitive advantage. One, one, one example is, like, you see lots of players building uh, their own independent agent networks. You might ask a question like, why can't one player come aggregate them and then just like provision agents as a service? Uh, but th- the thing there is that the agent networks are being built as like a distribution mode, uh, as comparative advantage to basically block access to the market once success has, has happened. So while there are significant frictions, I think like one, that's the cost of doing business here, one, uh, but also that is one of the things that ends up ensuring success in the, in the long run. So, I mean, let's talk fr- frictions. Um, what, what frictions would you say are the most pertinent to your experience, uh, Lucy? Yeah, just to touch on the agent piece, um, it's something that is actually part of our business is thinking about offline distribution. You know, most people still on the continent buy uh, airtime or data by going to an agent down the street and purchasing it in small quantities every few days. And when we think about uh, digital content, we want to give our consumers the same ability to purchase sort of credits or subscriptions through people they know that are in their community. And on the continent, this is not just in the mobile space. Just think about consumption in general. The companies that have done well are, are those that have really strong distribution, right? That's like regardless of what industry you're thinking about or focused on, distribution is is king. And we've started actually piloting an, an agent network in Nigeria. We have 2,500 agents on the ground right now, and it's been a huge engine for growth um, for us. 
both in terms of users, but importantly in terms of paying users, right? Because you have these communities of people that are sort of playing the game together, become social, becomes sort of this like virtuous cycle. And we think, as you mentioned, sort of distribution's key and Facebook's never going to build an agent network in Nigeria, right? That's just never going to happen. They'll argue they don't need to because they have everybody already. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All they need to do is turn on Libra. Yeah. And then make, make some money off of their data. Um, But we won't get into that. Wow. (laughs) Shots fired. (laughs) No, I mean, it's how they make money, right? They make money because they, they have data about us and our preferences. Exactly. And, and we hope that we're providing a good service that the user willingly, knowingly pays for. So to come back to your question around uh, around friction. Um, yeah. And also maybe in answering the friction question as well, like how much time you spend strategically in your boardroom, like how much time you guys pre-allocate to solving these issues versus, say, working on developing the next idea? Well, we think the value in our business is solving these questions or solving for the friction. All right. Yeah. So the world has a lot of content producers. And the continent has a lot of content producers, right? You have you have folks who are graduating from, from universities that have degrees in game design, but then have no way of actually bringing a, a product to market and making any money from it. So they, they remain hobbyists or they go through extreme lengths to try to raise a little bit of funding to publish one title and then really struggle to make any money from it. So when we think about kind of our value proposition, it's solving for the friction. Between Cordell and myself, we spend most of our time thinking about the various hurdles that we need to solve for just for one game that we'll be able to solve for a whole universe of games or or other applications that we, we publish. It's a big focus for us. Cordell was quoted recently saying that uh, running a startup in Africa is kind of like running a startup multinational corporation because when you're trying to pull all the pieces together you're taking sort of capital from the US or Asia you're taking sort of creative inputs from global trends looking at markets like India for example you're taking talent from wherever you can get it obviously we have an awesome local team here but they're from i think we have four different african countries and then we have a few europeans and americans that have joined us and it's just like you're kind of pulling together all of these global resources to solve whatever challenge you're trying to address on the continent. Yeah, I would say the friction probably comes in trying to navigate that a lot of time zones. So give me a sense of how you would sort of deploy your team's resources as head of operations to solving for those things, but also making sure that you are obviously incrementally keeping up with the, the service offering continues to grow per se. Yeah, it's a, really the way we think about how we allocate resources ultimately comes back to the value we're creating for customers. And so, you know, where we're investing our time is where we think we're going to have the highest value for our customers. And when we think about who our customers are, there are the consumers, right? Smartphone users that are downloading and playing our games. That Those are one set of customers. And then we have a second set of customers, which are content producers. And those are the guys I was just talking about, the app developers, game developers here and, and globally who are 
curious about the market, are interested in scaling in the market and, and don't have the ability to do so or know how to do so. Folks who are focused on creating new features for the games that we've published, developing new features that, for the games that are sort of in beta um, and constantly testing and iterating. And then we have folks that are focused on how we build out this platform play. And I think when you're managing a team, it's really important that one, you just you get the right people on board that have, have experience in what you're trying to pull off, give them very clear objectives for what success looks like. And then kind of my job is just removing the hurdles, right? Making sure that people are able to execute as quickly as they can, as effectively as they can, so that we can ultimately drive that value for our customers. How much of like the partnerships you are needing to strike from an existential point of view, so with the fintechs out there or, you know, partners like Africa's Talking or whoever, mm-hmm. how much of those things in a perfect world would, would be things you have in-house and don't need to go to other people for? I don't know if we want to do it in-house. I think there's a lot of space to play in the payment space, a lot of challenges there, right? Like we're not interested in going to to all the banks in Nigeria and creating sort of direct relationships with them so that our customers can do bank transfers from, you know, from their bank accounts to us when they're buying digital credits. You have partners that are doing that already with Flutterwave and Paystack. And you know, they've raised tens of millions of dollars to do just that. And so great. We're very happy for them to to figure that part of the challenge out and for us to then be a use case for how those new platforms can emerge and can catalyze the digital economy. So yeah, we have no interest in really bringing that in-house. There's a lot of work to be done there. And obviously it requires a lot of resource to get right. But a big part of our business is just understanding who the various players are right? Who's operating where? What are they doing? You know, is their technology reliable? How quickly are they scaling? And so there's a lot of business development work that needs to happen. And I think that's where we do have an advantage. You know, Cordell, my partner and and the CEO of Carry First uh, has been an angel investor in the tech space for the past several years. And so just has, you know, really good set of relationships and sense of the market, which has served us really well in just being able to understand where to go and who to work with. What's your experience been, though, Lucy, as far as regulation in the various markets you guys operate in, particularly in light of living in a sort of post-Cambridge Analytica scandal situation and the role of gaming in that story? Sure. So, I mean, I think when it, you know, we're still early days, but we haven't had any regulatory issues as of yet. When we set out to build this company, we did so very consciously with hopes to try to avoid operating in a regulated industry for as long as possible, right? Like the last thing you really want is to have a knock on your door from, from a regulator in any of these markets. But, you know, eventually we'll get big enough that they'll come. I think more than anything, what we've seen is more regulation from the big um, sort of monopolies 
right? So yeah, we, we haven't seen any interest from regulators, but definitely have to comply with the likes of, of Google Play, who's our major distribution partner. And so, Osaruman, you and I have had an offline conversation about the extent to which in Nigeria, for instance, the OPEs of this world, for example, are going to need to walk this tightrope of building on top of, say, mobile telco infrastructure and to the extent to which those mobile telcos are open to that level of collaboration or exploitation, depending how they look at it. It's going to be quite an interesting next couple of years for for that industry. What's your thinking currently on over-the-top plays that leverage existing networks, existing sort of monopoly infrastructure? Um, so I think I think it's MTN, uh, one of the big telcos in Africa, has a $100 million a year gaming business. So they definitely have strong interest in this space. And especially, uh, you know, giving us the traditional story of over-the-top services eating into telco revenue. So I'm pretty certain that telcos take an interest in the space. I'm not sure to what extent they have the ability to frustrate any players who want to play over the top. But I suspect this probably looks more like a, like a partnership opportunity than anything else. Yeah. And so, Lucy, are you guys positioning in the medium to long term as an acquisition target of, I don't know, anyone from Google to say a local mobile telco? Yeah, I mean, our primary focus right now is is obviously building a big, valuable business. But there are lots of interesting sort of strategic exits or strategic natural buyers for for Carry First. Once we've created it, this thing that we talk about, you know, their telcos could be one. You know, the big Asian internet companies, Naspers made its fortune buying a small piece of Tencent. And then obviously Tencent exploding over the next 15 years. And then it could be that Tencent comes back to the continent and decides that Carry First is the way that they want to sort of grow their platform and access this fast growing market. Lots of different interesting natural buyers for what we're building from an enterprise perspective. But with respect to telcos, we think there's really interesting ways to partner in the near term and are very happy to have conversations and have had a, started a few conversations with various telcos in, in Nigeria and South Africa around how we can partner. Uh, when you think about just the role of telcos, obviously they have the infrastructure in place, but importantly, they have direct carrier billing and, and airtime. And if you think about virtual payments or digital payments, there's like a lot of hype around crypto and these new sorts of virtual currencies, but it already exists with airtime, right? It's secure, it's transferable, you know, 90% of the continent purchases it already. And so if I were to give advice to a telco, right, that sees their voice revenues declining, is trying to figure out how to grow their revenue from data and and provide sort of value-added services, I'd say compete with Google Play, right? Become a distribution partner and change your fee structure so it makes sense for content producers, right? Like right now, if you want to work with a telco, they say, cool, you can use direct carrier billing for your app, but we'll take 80% of the revenue, So you're like, as a content producer, you're just like, cool, I can't survive. And so they're basically shooing you back into the arms of the, the prevailing global monopoly. Exactly. But what if they said, cool, we want to distribute your app. We'll put some marketing dollars behind it. They have massive balance sheets and we'll plug in our airtime. So all of our users can purchase digital goods using airtime or data. And you guys can take 80% of the profit 
it's like the pie just continues to grow. I mean, Google Play revenue was extraordinary last year. And these these app stores are now getting like a lot of criticism from content producers of taking too much. And that's at 30%, right? So I just think there's an interesting role. I challenge the telcos to, to think bigger, think bolder, think about kind of what it means to actually build a new industry and dominate it from a content perspective. And also, Ruman, I figure acting on what Lucy is saying requires a medium to long-term mindset that's not necessarily typical at most mobile telcos. This long-term view of, you know, where the world is going versus monthly, quarterly or annual reporting and sort of maximizing shareholder value in those in those periods. So I wonder, I wonder to what extent those frictions are also underestimated when, you know, this idea of what the next super app is going to look like, the next African super platform is going to look or feel like in Africa. I think Am I right in saying like that people need to become a little more humble to the various short-term walled garden sort of mentalities that are, are driving profit motives of, of companies like MTN? I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to say whether or not MTN is uh, short or long-termist, but I do know that they have built one of the most enduring businesses on the continent. Mm. I'm basically not sure I agree with the premise of the question uh, in the first place. Are you arguing that because they have so far positioned themselves as the biggest and the largest and arguably the most successful telco on the continent that it could be viewed that they're doing just fine as far as thinking long view? I guess what I'm suggesting perhaps is if I'm to echo or reflect what Lucy is saying, the kind of thinking that gets a Google Play or I think of another sort of platform that has nothing to do with the space or actually technically does, uh, an Amazon, for example, in the position they're at right now is not necessarily playing for the short term. And and it sounds like if you're going to demand 80% of revenues from a player like Carry First up front, you're probably not thinking through where Carry First might be in another five, 10 years. That, that is true, though I would, I would point out that like telcos have to deal with the world as it is and not as they would wish it to be. Amazon, by virtue of having a visionary founder whom investors have taken a liking to for very good reasons, has access to cheap capital and patient investors. Uh, and again, they are not facing the same headwinds as many telcos across the continent are. To give an example, telco infrastructure costs the same amount of money whether you're building in the US, you're building in China, you're building in Africa. But the Average revenue per user, I think for an American telco, is probably going to be like 130 or so dollars per month. For a Nigerian telco, say MTN Nigeria, it's probably closer to six, seven, in some cases, maybe even four dollars. And so like those constraints like will, will ultimately end up trickling down into how they think about like their business operations. We can't like burn them at the stake for being short-termist when they don't face the same, they're not in the same contexts as many of the so-called longer, longer-term players. That's fair. So Lucy, when you hear that, what, what do you think? Are you inclined to be a little more understanding or more patient with uh, the status quo? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I'm pretty understanding as it is. I think my challenge is one of, it's like a constructive challenge as just an opportunity to not sleep on. Right. I think where Carrie First is building with the premise that that change, that shift, that in like business focus or that sort of, yeah, thinking about content producers differently or kind of creating a business around supporting the content ecosystem, it's probably unlikely to happen. And we think we can build a business without it happening. 
But I do think it's a really interesting opportunity for telcos to play. And if, and I actually am pretty optimistic that there are folks thinking about this already. We've had some really interesting conversations with people in like the digital innovation space at various telcos who get it and who want to see the telcos investing in that space and thinking about content as another business stream to invest in over the next couple of decades. And I think there's time to do so. Whether that's going to be over the next three years, I think is probably unlikely, but there's a real opportunity and one for telcos to consider. What is the difference in your mind, Lucy, between gaming and gambling within the mobile context? Um, so to, to qualify as gambling, there are a few things that sort of need to be in place. Obviously, there's an element of luck involved, But the other thing is that there's like no floor to theoretically how much you could lose in the hopes of winning something back from a financial return perspective, right? And really where gambling becomes dangerous is in the space in which you don't have that floor and you keep betting on yourself. uh, And as we all know, the house always wins. That's how gambling is a an effective business model and why gambling companies do quite well. Gambling companies do exceedingly well <laughs> the world over and and certainly within the mobile space in Africa. And certainly within that space. Yeah, if you look at a lot of the sports betting companies you know, in Nigeria and Kenya specifically that have popped up over the past few years, I mean, they've grossed like a billion dollars. They've done very well. And so really, like there are a few things that sort of classify something as gambling. Gaming, on the other hand, is, is a form of entertainment, right? So yes, you can like keep purchasing things, but it's part of sort of an experience that you're creating for yourself, right? If let's say, for example, you like playing sort of simulation games like Sims, where you can build a, a city and have people live in it. And all of that's just like creating an entire world. Now, if you decide to spend a few dollars buying a special shovel or a <laughs> whatever you need in order to build that city, that's just part of you you investing in your in your experience. It, same thing goes for like a, a match three game. If you are sitting there and you want to play for a few more minutes and it requires you to buy a set of lives, that that's just really about sort of you making a decision for your own experience and not necessarily for any sort of financial gain on the flip side. Right. And also there's the floor to what you can lose within that context. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What's your philosophy around like free-to-play versus free-to-win games? Mm-hmm. So, so if we compare, say, a Candy Crush saga, which many, many players need to spend money on to go very far, versus a Fortnite where your experience or your ability to, to, to get ahead in the game is not tied to the money you're spending. Does Carifest have any policy or any thinking around that? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that we think about it is ultimately down to the consumer and we give them a lot of liberty, like philosophically speaking, we want them to be sort of in charge of their own experience. And so for some games, the consumer will want to, or a customer will want to sort of, again, invest in a premium experience and they'll have that option too. But for the most part, our games are free to play up to a certain point, mm-hmm. right? And then at that point, it's it's your discretion. We haven't yet gotten into the multiplayer games like Fortnite. 
I think, you know, when we get there, maybe we'll have different philosophies around how to create a fair economy or sort of a competitive landscape. But yeah, not not quite there yet. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of what some consider the dark arts of the African fintech scene, or at least a lot of players within the African fintech scene, which some people argue are building houses off the backs of lifelong uh, debt traps, I suppose. And then there's a version of that within gaming, which is the play for getting people addicted, habitually using things, uh, eventually living outside of their means, and basically counting on that as a business model. So in the context of Africa as, I guess, virgin territory relative to, to other parts of the world, how do you guys think about what's acceptable and what's not within the context of how to go about monetizing, as you put it, investments in entertainment? Yeah, so I think there's some really interesting points and conversation around how we're managing as humans our own attention and where the attention is going. And there's really important dialogue that needs to be had around kind of where we're spending our time and how it's influencing our life experiences, the health of our relationships, the health of our bodies. I think fundamentally when it comes to um, financial health, really it would be very difficult to significantly change your financial position through games. Like fundamentally, they're not that addictive dependent like with the value proposition that you you would go into debt playing a carry first game right like I, I don't i haven't heard of any stories yet of folks who've gone into debt because they just had to get to the next candy crush level <laughs> right like I, no one's like taking out loans necessarily for for netflix but i know gaming addiction's a thing i mean it's literally a a, a psychological condition that's now recognized and i suppose depending when you start and depending on the nature of your game. And again, I'm not trying to lump you together with people who are recognized as dodgy actors within totally. the space globally or otherwise. Yeah, That's not the intent of the question. I suppose what is interesting here and from an opportunity standpoint, as far as Africa is concerned, is we get to potentially frame how this should work for us mm. in a way that perhaps, you know, the horse is bolted on elsewhere in the world. And I wonder how you guys think about that in the context of being part of the new wave in this space for the continent. Sure. I mean, I'd be really curious to hear other people's sort of thoughts and ideas around that. One of the reasons why it hasn't been something we've spent a lot of time thinking about is that our consumers are naturally constrained given the, the cost of data or the the ability to connect to a network, there's sort of a natural constraint on what our customers can consume, right? That, that, that there's like already sort of like a guidepost that we haven't had to set. And so I think it's interesting as the sort of industry matures and develops that we have an ability to sort of craft a, a new story or a new way of thinking about, again, I think it's, it's not just gaming, it's just like attention more broadly. Gaming addiction certainly is a thing. And so is sort of Netflix binging, right? It is, it, that is truly a, a thing people do. We kind of laugh about it, but, but people are spending tens of hours a day <laughs> watching series. And not being productive and and having declining relationships and health, and no one thinks Netflix is a bad actor. So I don't I don't, I don't consider the the conversation sort of a, a target on on Carrie First or what we're doing. 
you're actually challenging my thinking on this because I suppose um, there's an argument for the opportunity cost of, say, the the increased proliferation of YouTube watching on the African continent to our societies, to our economies. Yeah. In an objective sense, there's the, literally a loss of, of potential. Yeah. Uh, or a, a diffusion of potential. And I suppose... To be fair, we have to hold everyone up to the same standard. I, I'm put, I'm putting, putting up to you. Yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, and and I I don't like the like everything is relative argument. So I don't usually make it as human beings. We have ad, you know addictive tendencies, and and more and more there are things that are sort of pulling our attention. And whether that's games, whether that's Netflix, whether that's YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or how many likes you have, uh, this is a much sort of broader conversation. And I think it requires a lot of work, not just from those of us who are creating content and platforms for people to be entertained and connected, which is something that as human beings, we all enjoy and makes our life meaningful or at least gives us a place to have some reprieve from what makes our lives so stressful, right? There's like a lot of good that comes from content, from entertainment, from being able to access it on our phones. And then there's a conversation around like, what's our responsibility as content producers? And there's a bigger conversation around like, how do we help people navigate a world where their their attention is, is always being sort of asked for? Um, by different platforms. And that's, that's like policy, that's education, that's parenting, you know, that there's like, there's a lot of, of work more broadly that we need to think about. And it's a larger conversation. So Lucy, any idea why as a woman, and uh, sorry to, to make, to make it this way, but I think you are, you are qualified. <laughs> I am a woman. To, to maybe speculate uh, about why more women than men are taking to or adopting uh, mobile games. That's a great question. So, so globally, women are more likely than men to be mobile gamers. It's, I think it's something like 60-40 um, women to men. One idea, and, and this is kind of, it goes against what people's expectations are when you talk about quote unquote gamers, people generally think of like sweaty teenage boys in basements. <laughs> and, and that may be the case with console games. But when it comes to mobile games, I think part of it is is the privacy. I think there's an element of it, mobile gaming and and sort of mobile interactions generally are are quite private. So whether that's like, you know, a woman kind of finding a, a reprieve, a little time to herself where she's not potentially serving others, I think there's a really interesting, really interesting sort of corollary there. Um, but yeah, I, otherwise, I've, I'm not sure. Maybe women love match three games. Um, uh, not exactly sure why women are more likely than men. Right, right. You know how big esports is getting around the world? And, and I mean, I've read uh, insane stats on how much bigger esport is becoming than this sport and that sport and, and how it's just taking over the world and, uh, you know, how it's yeah. for Gen Z, like forget basketball. You know, it's all about esport and everything, right? Uh, I wonder given the constraints and the realities we've described about the African continent, or to what extent certain African markets might be ready to hop on that trend? Esports is massive. Uh, I think it's estimated to be something like a, a billion dollar industry globally, and obviously one that's that's fast growing. And I think there are a few sort of characteristics about esports that make it hot. One is there's a social element. Esports, just by its their nature, it's competitive, it's social. 
you can like develop a whole personality and set of friends and and community with esports and like all sort of human experiences that's really attractive and then there's an element of celebrity right you have uh you had 700,000 people log in to watch Drake play Fortnite which kind of broke all all records and so there's this element of also being able to like play against relate to compete with celebrity and and all participate in the same sort of interactive ecosystem there's like an egalitarian vibe right in the sense that i mean not everyone can be ronaldo but <laughs> yeah. technically anyone could become good enough to become the next big sort of esports star in, in a way that's not true for basketball or soccer or or rugby or that yeah. kind of thing. Or tennis. There is a sort of a level playing field, if you will. Um, because like... Or perceived or sense of... Yeah, I mean, there field. may be another Ronaldo, but that like never got discovered because he was in rural Uganda and like just no one saw him. But if you can become exceptional at Fortnite, it doesn't actually matter where you're based, you'll be discovered. Because they'll be like, follow that username, let's find that guy. Now there there are huge challenges with esports becoming as big as it has elsewhere on the continent and it's particularly around data. Right? So esports makes a lot of sense for a lot of these very data intensive um multiplayer games in an environment where data is expensive where uh you may not have access to the internet in the same way you might get in sort of more developed urban areas uh it makes it difficult to compete that would be the limiting factor but there's still a lot of there's still i think a really interesting space for esports to play on the continent um particularly uh in like high density areas and when you see, you, you see people everyone's moving to the cities you can make esports more of a communal thing, right? You can have esports halls. This is something that's worked really well in Southeast Asia. There's like hot spots where people get together and they play games. You can see that on the continent as well. And so that could be really interesting, but it's going to have an offline component which which is may look different than you see in other places on the planet. Who who knows? That could be the next big sort of VC back talent farm idea, you know. Yeah, let's, exactly. Let's, <laughs> let's pop these off. Well, listen, it's been an educational hour plus with you. Um, thank you so much for, for being on the show. You are properly part of the village. You have set straight some of the oversimplifications I might have had about the the potential of gaming as the next super app or super platform. I'm also suitably enthused to keep watching the space, particularly as someone who's not a gamer in any shape or form on my phone or otherwise. Um, I think it's quite important <laughs> to to appreciate how <laughs> relative to other normal human beings I <laughs> I'm not part of what's going on or what's hot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we really, really um, want to thank you for being on the show, Lucy. No, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks for the questions and for shining a spotlight on what we're doing and why we think it's interesting. Thank you, Lucy. Absolutely. Also, Ruman, as always, dude, thank you so much for um, bringing your brain to the matter. Did you see what I did there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, thank you, brother. 
Uh, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure flying alongside with you uh, for these episodes. Listen, if you've been listening and you have a ton of questions or perhaps uh, a view to factor in, we'd love to hear from you. Please drop us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com or on social. You can find us on Instagram or indeed on Twitter at African Roundup. We're also on the Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. Uh, what do you make of gaming on the continent? What do you make of the super app trend in general? Which trends do you tip to break through, perhaps at the expense uh, of others and leave others trailing in, in its wake? Do you think fintech? Do you think gaming? Or do you see, like me, perhaps just another decade or so of us trying to figure out what we need and how to do it right here on the continent? Whatever you think, please give us a shout. Drop us a post or drop us an email, whatever you like. But otherwise, thank you again to you, Lucy Hoffman-Parry, as well as Osaruman Osamui. This is Andile Masugu saying, take it easy, Africa.